Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Muhammad Ali is regarded as one of the most significant sporting figures of the 20th century. He is also regularly ranked at the top of the list of the greatest heavyweight boxers of all time. He won the gold medal in the light heavyweight division of the Summer Olympics in 1960 at the age of 18. And four years later, he performed a major upset to defeat Sonny Liston and claim the world heavyweight title. He also fought in such iconic battles as the Thrilla in Manila and the Rumble in the Jungle. Don't you love those names? But despite all of these professional achievements, perhaps the thing that he's known for the most is his outsized, oversized ego. You know, he, he made the nickname for himself, he made this nickname for himself, the greatest. After he defeated Sonny Liston, this is what he said, I am the greatest. I shook up the world. I'm the prettiest thing that ever lived. <laughs> wow. Now remember, he was just 22 years old at this point when he made this claim. So even though he may have grown up to eventually become the greatest boxer of all time, at this point, his claim was a little bit premature. But that's who Muhammad Ali was. He was cocky to a fault. He's even allegedly, one time he allegedly refused to put on his seatbelt while taking a flight because, as he said, Superman don't need no seatbelts. To which the very frustrated flight attendant replied, well, Superman don't need no airplane either. <laughs> now, <laughs> I don't think anybody here would make the claim of being the greatest, but I wonder how many times we've let pride get in the way of our relationships. Our relationships with each other, our relationships with God. You know, Pastor Randy in his Advent series led us through exploring those on whom God's favor rests. And what we discovered was that God's favor rests on those who realize they need it. Not those who call themselves the greatest, but who consider themselves the least. Not those who, who call themselves saints, but those who see themselves as sinners. Not those who depend on their riches, but those who come to God in their poverty. God's favor rests on those who realize they need it. And that's why Jesus says in Luke chapter 5, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to call the righteous 
I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So sometimes the best that we can offer God is the realization that we are among the worst. But that's not the only reason why God calls us to embrace our need. It's not just important for our relationship with God. It's also crucial for our relationships with each other. And that's what Jesus dramatically demonstrates in John chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them up, flip them on, turn them on to John chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 1 and explore the crucial component of community. John chapter 13 verse 1 reads, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in this world, he loved them to the end. In other words, what, what's about to happen is another powerful demonstration of Jesus' unifying love for his disciples. He's about to reach out to them in a way that breaks down the barriers that separate them from him and them from each other. Verse 2. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now let's pause here for a moment. What makes this demonstration of love particularly poignant is the fact that one of Jesus' disciples had already decided to betray him. Judas had literally sold Jesus out. For 30 pieces of silver, he was going to betray Jesus and take him and give him up to his enemies. So this is not Jesus showing love to, some, to people who were just like him. These dis disciples thought differently than he did. They disagreed with how he was about to go about his mission. One was willing to betray him to get his own way. So how did Jesus do it? How did Jesus build community with people who were so different from him and also different from each other? These disciples came from a variety of backgrounds. I mean, there was a zealot in the group who hated Romans and a tax collector who had, who had worked with Romans. Think about the conversations that they had together. It was a diverse group of people with different backgrounds. So how did Jesus build community with them and among them? It's a good question to ask because it's easy to show love to those who think like us, believe like us, and behave like us. It's much harder to be in true community with those who think differently than us, who argue with us, and who fight against us. So how did Jesus do it? What is the crucial component of community? Take a look. Verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Now, there is powerful symbolism here. Jewish men typically wore two layers of clothing, an inner garment and an outer garment. And the outer garment usually communicated their rank and position. So Jesus puts aside this outer garment that symbolizes his rank and position to, verse 5, after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So he puts aside that garment to wash their feet, which, as you can imagine, was not a pleasant task. 
So while it was customary for hosts to offer to wash the feet of their guests, those who could afford it would pay, pay servants to perform this menial task for them. They outsourced this work. But in this room, there was a basin for washing, and there was a towel for drying, but there was no servant present to wash their feet. And I love how Ellen White, in her, in her book, Desire of Ages, describes this moment. She writes, The pitcher, the basin, and the towel were there in readiness for the feet washing. But no servant was present, and it was the disciples' part to perform it. See, everybody saw the need, but nobody wanted to perform it. Everybody knew what needed to be done, but nobody wanted to do it. It kind of reminds me of the story of the family of turtles that decided to go on a picnic. And so they prepared for seven years for this picnic because, you know, turtles are slow, right? <laughs> and then they traveled for two years trying to find the perfect spot, and when they found it, they spent six months preparing it, clearing the area, putting out the food, and that's when they discovered there was no salt. And they all agreed they could not have a picnic without salt. But who would go? Who would go back to get the salt? They deliberated for a long time and decided that the youngest should be, go and get the salt. Can I get an amen? <laughs> but despite the fact that the youngest turtle was the fastest of all the turtles, he moaned and groaned and complained and whined and would not go back until they all agreed that they wouldn't eat a single bite of food until he came back. And so he left. And a year passed, two years passed, five years passed, and the little turtle still hadn't returned. Finally, at the seventh year, the oldest turtle said, I can't handle this any longer. I'm too hungry. I'm going to eat. So he grabbed his sandwich, unwrapped it, and was about to take a bite when all of a sudden the youngest turtle popped up from behind the bush and said, See, I knew you wouldn't wait for me. Now I'm definitely not going to go back to get the salt. It sounds ridiculous, but that's sort of what the disciples are doing here, isn't it? They, they, they know what needs to be, like these disciples, they know what needs to be done, but they refuse to do it because they're more concerned with preserving their own position, their own privilege, their own power. Ellen White continues. She says, all manifested a stoical unconcern, seeming unconscious that there was anything for them to do. By their silence, they refused, they refused to humble themselves. And yet Jesus, in stark contrast, Jesus, who is their teacher, their rabbi, their master, the highest ranking person in the room, he, in order to show love to them, in order to show, build community with these men who were so different from him, he decides to put aside his privilege, his power, and his, his position. Ellen White describes it this way. He, the divine teacher, rose from the table, laying aside the outer garment that would have impeded his movements. He took a towel and girded himself. Did you catch that? Did you catch that? 
He put aside that outer garment, that outer garment that symbolized his position. He put it aside because it would have impeded his ability to love them. Because it would have impeded his ability to serve them. And instead, he puts on the towel of a servant. See, Jesus humbled himself to build community. And then he invited the disciples to do the same. Verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. And in doing so, Jesus reveals the crucial component of community, and that's humility. Community takes humility. Can I say that again? Community takes humility. It takes us being willing to put off our own privilege, our own power, our own position, so we can focus on others. And that's important because humility is all about focus. Humility is not thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. It's not convincing myself that I am worthless. It's not thinking less of myself. It's thinking of others more. That's humility. It's an other-centered approach to life so that when we're with people, we're really with them. But that's, that's kind of hard because the reality is that we are our own favorite subject. Isn't that right? We're obsessed with our own desires and wants and needs. So that even when we're around other people, we're really just thinking about ourselves. And that's why Pastor John Orberg writes, humility involves a Copernican revolution of the soul. The realization that the universe does not revolve around us. And this is the kind of humility that is needed to build, this is the kind of humility that is needed to build community with those who are so different from us. Because as we begin, as we begin to focus on them, as we, as we start to seek to, to pay attention rather than just get attention, as we seek to listen and truly listen to other people, that's when we start to discover that we're not all that different after all. That what holds us together is so much greater than what separates us. And that's why four times a year, in this community of faith, we practice the ordinance of humility. We follow the example of Jesus and wash each other's feet. And we perform this menial task to remind ourselves of what it takes to build community what it takes to build this community, this community that's full of people of different persuasions and perspectives, full of people with different political affiliations. Come on. What it takes to build community here is humility. It takes us being willing to put aside our privilege, our power, and our position so we can focus on each other. So I'd like to invite you now to participate in that ordinance of humility. You can leave through the doors 
on your right and my left. Uh, the rooms are listed in your bulletin, or they'll also be on the screen. Wash each other's feet. And as you do so, look around for others who may not have a partner and invite them into your circle. And when you're done, when you're done, come back to the sanctuary and we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So go and build community. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.